Amen. This time, let's just open our hearts to the word of the Lord as Pastor Dave comes and shares it with us. Before I speak, uh, I want to ask if we could just bow one more time and just pray. God, we really agree with the song we just sang. Your word teaches us that creation day and night sings about your glory. It stands as a visible, constant reminder that you are there and you are good and you are great and you are full of glory. So we pray for help that today somehow we could also join with creation, declaring that from the bottom of our hearts. We love you, Lord, and we just pray that your glory would not just fill the earth, but fill our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been gone for a while on family vacation, um, small group retreat, a short trip to Uganda. And so I haven't seen my own church family in like a month. I feel like it's been forever. And as you can see, uh, I don't know if you remember how much lighter I used to be, but I've spent a lot of time under the sun, under the sky, outside. I haven't spent this much time outdoors in a very long while. And so as I come to the text this morning, it holds special meaning for me because I feel like I've connected in some way with God outdoors like I haven't in a long time. And I want to share a little bit with you along that vein. The message this morning is called The God Who Speaks. Okay, The God Who Speaks. And the central premise is this. We have a God who is not playing hide and seek or hard to get with us. I know there are days when you feel like you open the Bible and there's just a deadness in your heart, or you're going through something, you're praying, and it seems like all of your prayers are falling on deaf ears. But I want you to know that we do not have a God who is running away or hiding from us. In fact, He is intentionally, zealously trying to be seen and known by us. He has made every effort to display Himself to reveal himself to us, and we should be grateful for that. And if you can't see God quickly or easily, I want you to know this, that if you will hold out, if you will keep looking, you will not fail to see God who is never trying to hide from us. And that's a good moment to say amen. I I don't don't know if you guys are just too hot to care, but that's a good moment to just say I agree with that. Some of us really need to hear that this morning. I want to just read Psalm 19 through with you. And I threw you a curveball. I know that Pastor John, I asked them printed in the New American Standard Bible, but as I was reflecting and meditating on six different translations of this, my heart just kept drifting back to the New Living Translation. I think it, it just is so beautiful in the way that it words this, and it captures the full meaning of the original language in this case. And so I want to read out of the New Living Translation. And here's what it says. <clears throat> Can you you see that now? Okay, here we go. The heavens tell of the glory of God. The skies display His marvelous craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make Him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies. Yet, their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to all the world. The sun lives in the heavens where God placed it. 
It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. You can say amen after this week to that verse right there. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight to life. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. And the laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the honeycomb. They are a warning to those who hear them. There is great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep me from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth, the thoughts of my heart, be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. You know, that's a very clearly written and beautiful psalm. It seems almost a shame to say anything more after that, but I've got to. I, I just have to say a few things. I don't have a whole lot of time this morning, and so I've left a good deal of this out, uh, stuff that I felt I wanted to say, and I've really tried to discipline myself to say what I think is the most important stuff from this passage. And as we, as we really open here, we're fond of saying, aren't we, in the church, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard that before? Maybe had it on a bumper sticker? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But if that's true, that creates a tension both for the outsider and for the Christian, doesn't it? Because if Christianity is not a religion, which actually is much, much easier, give me a list of rules, some parameters, set up a fence around me, I'll do exactly what is required, and I'll get all the benefits that were promised to me. Wouldn't it be great if Christianity were a religion? It would make our lives a lot easier. In fact, you can make an app for that. I, Christianity, everything you're supposed to do, there it is. But in fact, Christianity is a little messier. It's a little bit more subjective than that. It is a relationship. And if it is, then here's the question that, that, that we have to ask. How does one enter into a relationship with a God you can't see? If you're an outsider not a Christian, that's a very perplexing question. How do you have a relationship with God? And if you are a Christian, it also creates a tension because you've been around God for so long, some of us, you think you know Him, but in fact, we haven't actually built the relationship. We were introduced and then we marched off in a direction that looks much more like religion. And the truth is, though we call it a relationship, if our relationship with God were an actual human relationship, it would be near, near flatline, close to divorce for a lot of us, because we haven't grown in that relationship hardly at all in the recent past. And so I think this idea that, that Christianity is a relationship is a powerful one, but a troubling one. And I believe that Psalm 19 addresses that tension very capably. Because if you think about it, all relationships are built on revelation, aren't they? 
All relationships are built on revelation. Two people cannot get to know one another unless both parties decide that they will reveal something of themselves that is true to the other person. Would you agree with that? How many people would you say are my real friends but I don't know a thing about them? If you put a gun to my head and told me, write one page essay on my friend. Tell me all about him. I couldn't do it because the truth is we've been hanging around next to each other for years, but I don't actually know anything about him. You can't say we have a relationship without there being a two, two-way, bi-directional revelation of something. And so that's why it's so important that while we might look out at heavens and say, how do I relate to an invisible God? God, in fact, makes the first move. He reveals himself to us. That is what makes a relationship with God possible in the first place, is that God reveals himself to us. And he does it in several ways. Uh, you know, I, I, I sat through probably 12 hours of graduate-level lecture on this topic of the ways that God reveals himself to us. I am not going to spend anywhere close to 12 hours, but I want to tell you, I want to unpack for you how God does reveal who he is to us. And the first way that he reveals himself is, is he reveals himself through creation. Okay? He reveals himself through creation. You know, when you see a piece of art... A couple things happen right away. That's, by the way, that's a piece of art. In this lighting, it's hard to see it. But I think it's people in a big field full of flowers, and there's like a village in the back. Now, and when you see this piece of art, a couple things happen right away. One is, because you're intelligent people, you know that that's not a real field with real people. That is a piece of art that someone has made to depict something else, right? Is anyone thinking, wow, how come those people aren't moving? No, this is a picture, it's a made thing. Right away you process that. But another thing you know right away is you have an opinion about that, don't you? Some of you would never hang that on the wall of your home for any amount of money. And some of you, if you could, you'd get it right now. Take a picture with your iPhone, print it, hang it on your wall. Because art produces an immediate response. You either like it or you don't. You have an opinion. You can't not have an opinion about art. But as you pass judgment on a piece of art, you're not just passing judgment on this inanimate object. The picture can't be blamed for anything. Stupid picture, you're so ugly. Why are you so ugly? You, you can't do that because the picture didn't make itself. When you cast judgment on a piece of art, you are making a statement and expressing an opinion about the artist who created it, who had either the gall or the vision to put that thing in the world and make us look at it. And the thing is, art is ultimately one of the deepest, most profound forms of revelation. It is an artist saying, there's something in me that I can't use words to describe. There it is. That's what I see. What do you think? It is an artist bringing something from inside out and showing everyone. And now you're free to have an opinion about it because he has just revealed himself to you. That is what God does for us through creation. I mean, look what it says, the heavens. That's a way of saying the sky, especially if you think about it, the night sky, which on a clear day in the countryside, if you lay on the, the grass, you feel like you're on the surface of the moon looking at outer space, don't you? And just stars everywhere. I just had an experience like that in Uganda, way out in the sticks, and it was the most amazing. You just stare, 
and you swear you're, you're soaring through outer space. Stars everywhere. And so it says, the heavens declare or tell the glory of God, and the skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. And it says, day after day, they continue to speak, and night after night, they make him known. In other words, you can't turn off the sky. It is an always 24-7 witness. And it says one thing. God is here. He is out there. He is down here. He, he lives. And this sky we look at is a pointer to something else. Whether you, how many of you prefer the daytime sky? Do you, do you love clouds and blue sky? How many of you prefer daytime sky to nighttime sky? And how many of you just love to look at the stars, to, to be drawn to the wonder of it, the night sky. Isn't that just one of the most... You don't get to see it much in Chicagoland. You've got to drive way out to where no people live. And then you see the stars, don't you? And the sky, you can't stare at it for very long without being captured by some kind of instinctive sense of wonder. And what David says is, you know that wonder you feel? Sometimes the awe... Sometimes the terror, and I think especially in the night sky. Would you agree? I mean, just something about seeing it. Go, wow, that little twinkle, twinkle little star is this ginormous ball of burning gas hundreds of millions of years away. And there's trillions and gazillions of them out there. And the smallness you feel, the sense of awe. At first, when you look at the sky, you feel like you're in a giant snow globe and you're at the center of it because the dome is right above you. And you feel like, wow, this is my sky. Until you see the stars and you go, I am nothing. I am nothing. I'm ant droppings in the grand picture of the universe. I'm sorry, that's the way we do it at Harvest. I just, uh, sorry if you got offended. That's the least of what you're going to get. David would have looked into the night sky and he would have seen just a small sliver of the universe, but to him, it would have been beyond imagination. Today, for us, with the Hubble telescope and modern astronomy, we know the true vastness of the universe. How much more should we, in our day and age, be captured by a sense of wonder when we contemplate the sky? And who put the sky there? And to think about the fact that this universe, whether you're, you, you believe in the Big Bang Theory, whether you believe in creation, it doesn't matter. The idea is, regardless of which camp you're in, there was a time when nothing was here. When there was no universe. And this idea that a God who always was, just spoke it into being. And what was there before him? See, we shouldn't picture that God was in this massive, giant, empty room, and then he made a universe. There wasn't even a room. There was nothing but God before the universe. God defined all reality, all existence. Let that just simmer for a while, and after you think about it, maybe have a few, uh, a few sleeping pills, and as you're drifting off, that's going to blow your mind. God is reality. And before this whole universe, as vast as it is, existed, there was just Him. And the heavens point to Him. The same way that a work of art points to its creator. You can't just look at it and cast judgment on what you see. You must deal with the question, who put this here? How did it get here? That is why cosmology, this idea of, not the study of makeup, but like how things got here, the origins of the universe... That is one of the central questions every religion must wrestle with. If you can't wrestle with and resolve the question, how did it all begin, then shut up. 
You're just blowing smoke about things that already showed up. You have no idea where it came from. Do you get that? And so he's saying, why the sky? Why does David pick out the sky as the, the representative part of creation that causes him to wonder? Because the sky is the vastest part of it. You look at it and you think it's a canopy or a cover, but it's not. You sense right away that it's a window to something so far beyond outside of your grasp, but is most certainly out there. It is our window to the rest of the universe. And it begins to give you this idea that there is one much greater than us. He lives out there and he has told us he lives in here. That just blows our mind. It, it gives us a touch to something that we call glory. That feeling you sense inside when something truly captures your imagination makes you shiver with awe. If you haven't had that, you're just not paying attention. If you've never experienced that feeling of wonder and glory, start living. Pay attention to the world around you. Because that feeling is nature's way of reminding us that God lives and that he exists. It says they speak without a sound or a word. In other words, nature doesn't have to say a thing to tell us about God. But day and night, it's more faithful than we are. It speaks, it shouts, it sings the existence, the praise, the glory of God all the time. And it does so not with words, but just with its mere existence. In other words, this is God's nonverbal communication, isn't it? It's God's nonverbal communication. Just like when we gesture, you know, that girl you thought was winking at you was actually, she had a ripped contact lens and she's going like this. You know, nonverbal communication is when we're trying to get a message across without words. This is God's way of doing it. He's saying, you can just look around you. You'll know I'm there. I put reminders of me everywhere. Why is it that a mountain range fills your heart with awe? You know those great scenes with the dramatic music in Lord of the Rings? Boom, it's Cook National Park in New Zealand. And you see a mountain and you think about this. Why does a mountain just turn me on so much? Why does Ansel Adams get a million dollars for a photograph of a giant triangular pile of rock and dirt? Because that's all a mountain is. It's this giant heap of stone and dirt. But when we look at it, there's more to it than that. It does something inside of us. How come everyone is instinctively drawn to the ocean? How many of you would rather go to the beach than a library? Just raise your hand. How many of you would rather be at a beach than here right now? Yeah. And we love the ocean. Why? It's just this giant puddle of salty liquid. That's all it is. It's just really, it's just water with salt in it in large amounts. But it's more than that, isn't it? It draws us in. It's as if it keeps telling us, look at the vastness, the glory, the, the majesty of it all. And you know that God is saying, these things and the awe it inspires point you to me. Don't miss that signal. Pictures of the Hubble telescope, the galleries that are available online, don't they just make your imagination real? Do I have any sci-fi nerds in the house? People, when you see pictures like this, you're like, dang, there's got to be aliens out there. I got I to gotta know what, what's going on over there. And the thought that this is one of hundreds of millions of galaxies, it's just, your mind can't even contain it. And as we see these things, we realize the heavens, even the more advanced we get and we peer out beyond our earth, it's just showing us more and more of the wonder which God has been communicating all along. 
David brings it a little more down to earth and he says, this, let me give you a, a, another example that you see every day. The sun, the sun every morning, he must have written this while watching a sunrise. I see very few sunrises because I am not a morning person. How many of you people, you, you guys are, are morning people? Uh, sick people. All right. So <laughs> you see a lot of sunrises. What does it do to you when you see the sun peeking up? It, it gives you this sense of real hope, right? The promise of a new day. It, it does something. And I, well, isn't it interesting, the analogy he uses for the eagerness of the sun to show itself, to demonstrate God's glory. He says, it's like a bridegroom after his wedding. Or in other translations, like a bridegroom racing to his chamber. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? No groom looks forward to the wedding. He looks forward to the wedding night. The wedding is torture. Oh, smile, stand there. But the wedding night is a different matter altogether. Amen? Amen? Men? And this demonstrates the eagerness, the anxiousness of the son to get out there and declare who God is. Because as he does it, God is being made known through its light, its heat. No one can hide from the sun. Imagine how meaningful that last verse was. No one can hide from its heat. We're talking about an ancient people before ice, before air conditioning. Today, what a big deal. Go inside, turn on the AC. Imagine if there's no place to go. I would just want to end it all if I lived back then. I don't do well in the heat. But the sun will not be ignored. When it rises, it's bright everywhere. When it shines, it's hot everywhere. And God, like the sun, is anxious that he should be displayed to us. This is the God we worship, is one who, like a champion, just rearing to go, he can't wait to run a race which he knows he'll win, you know that confidence that comes from looking around and going, I can beat every last one of these chumps. Let's go. And you can't wait for the race to start. That's God's heart wanting to display himself, to reveal himself to us. He is not trying to hide. And the thing is, the sad part is, God is so anxious. He's so busy communicating, revealing through nature, but not just through nature. He's doing it through all kinds of things, through the turns of events in your life. He's revealing himself all the time. But a big part of the problem is we don't know how to look for him anymore. You know, it's interesting to me how people in less developed countries, I, I was just in Uganda, and it's interesting. There are people who will just be walking with you and they go, it's going to rain in about an hour. Is this a movie? Are you kidding me? He goes, no, I know, because you can feel the changing wind and the pressure on your skin feels... And I'm like, what? They're so in tune with their natural surroundings. And John Piper made an interesting observation, which I think, um, I, think I like to, to build on a little. He says, there are two kinds of seeing, active seeing and passive seeing. Passive seeing is when you just stare at something, just look at it. It's what we do all day long, all the time. We live in a, a, a very multimedia age where you can't not see a screen in front of your face at least every 30 minutes, right? I'm using a screen in front of you right now. I'm using a screen. Then you go into your car, there's a GPS screen, and your phone now has a screen, and your kids' toys have screens, and your refrigerators now have screens, your microwave has a screen, everything has a screen, and the TV especially, and the internet 
your computer, your iPad, your iPod. And through all of it, what is your role? Sit like a dummy and stare at one place. Don't turn your head. Don't change your field of view. Your depth of focus doesn't even have to change. And you passively will watch whatever parades across that narrow field of view. That's passive seeing. There it goes, there it goes, there it goes. And that's the way our world trains us to see everything. I tell my kids, hey, come here, look at this. And they walk over and go, oh yeah, it's a frog giving birth. And then they just run off. I'm like, what? Stupid kid, that's a frog giving birth. Stupid kids. But you know what they're doing? They've been trained to look passively. I stare, I note visual things, things going on. I, I gather data and images. I don't process any of it. I'm not asking what that is or what it means. I just want to walk away. Where's the next image, Dad? You kids are so poor. You're so poor. You have no idea what poverty you live in because the only way you know how to see is passively. But the ancients knew how to look and see actively because there wasn't that much to see. You know, there's no TV. You're like, oh, gosh, the same faces and the same dirt and village and... The same old tired song in the village square. Your grandpa would probably tell you the same story like a hundred thousand times. So you start going, well, what else is there in this story? Maybe it changed the words. You're looking, you're looking, you're looking. And as you look, actively seeing, sometimes a wondrous thing happens. Something you didn't see at first comes suddenly into view. And when that happens, it takes your breath away. See, we preachers are kind of lucky because this happens for us almost every week. I don't want you to be jealous, but hey, you know, you didn't, you didn't go to seminary. So <laughs> if, if you want this, go into ministry. You know, I got to stand up and preach almost every week. And after a while, it's like really draining to go, I'm just going to come up with a speech. And so you want to see something real. And so you open up the scriptures and for the first couple days you're wrestling with, you're looking at it and you're trying to squeeze something good to say out of it, but it's not happening. And there's this frustration, but you stay at it and you stay at it and you dwell on it and you pray over it. And as you actively are searching by Wednesday or Thursday, something amazing happens. You look at the same tired text, which you have read in 18 languages, 20 translations, and bam, God speaks. And it's not just a new string of words you couldn't have come up with before, but you see something. You know, I was reading this long list of verses that caused people to become Christians. These people whose testimony is, well, I was a total pagan, then I read Romans 13, 13, and bam, like a ton of bricks, I was saved. And I'm like, what? So I, I started looking up all these verses, and I'm like, it's all right, it's a good verse, but seriously, like... To completely interrupt your course of life, you must be really hard up for entertainment. But that's not what it was. It's not just the string of words, but that powerful moment where you see beyond the words and you understand what these words are portraying. There is truth here, something glorious that if you see it, it'll rock your soul. And this is the way we need to be trained to see and to look for God. You can't just go, oh, you said God's there, I don't know, I've, I went to the church for like three months and it wasn't that great. I didn't see God, so I'm leaving. And you have no idea as you've done that in the wake of your superficial seeing how much you have lost in life. I'm going to run out of time, so I'm just going to cruise through some other stuff. Another way that God reveals himself 
and fear not. By the way, it should be verses 7 through 11. That's what you get for copying and pasting. (laughs) I'm not going to exposit every last little structure of this next passage. I want to capture its big message and then give you a couple quick examples, and then we'll, we'll end together. God reveals himself through scripture. See, here's the problem with um, nonverbal communication. It can be misunderstood. It can be insufficient to communicate everything, right? You know, just like, like the, that little joke I made of the girl who you think is winking and she's having trouble with her contact, or sometimes when my wife is on the other side of the store, she's like, like this and all this stuff, and I'm like, I'm staring, what, what are you doing? I don't get, finally she goes, get the tissues! She's frustrated because she's trying to gesture. It should work, right? But it's not working. I'm almost getting it, but I don't. And that's the problem with nonverbal communication. It's enough to let you know I'm out here. I'm talking at you. Here I am. But exactly what you're saying or who you are needs to be resolved a little more clearly, doesn't it? And that's why you can't just walk around Yosemite National Park and say, I know God now. Oh, me and God are tight. I have seen every mountain range. I've sailed every ocean. I have been out there alone. You just don't know, you churchy people. I've been out there feeling the breeze and I know God. You're a deist. You know that there's a supreme being. Congratulations that there's someone bigger than you who made all this. Congratulations. But you don't know God yet. You know there is a God. You don't know him yet. Any more than you have a penny. And I saw Abraham Lincoln. I know Abraham Lincoln. I've had so many of his pennies in my pocket. That's stupid. You can't just know God by looking at his nonverbal communication. It's not enough. It's enough to get your attention. It's enough to churn something in your heart. But you must hear his words to actually know him. What's interesting is in verses 1 through 6, where it's talking about nature as a witness, David consistently uses the generic name for God, El. It's interesting, right? El is, in Hebrew, the generic name that we would spell G-O-D, just God. But in verses 7 through 11, when he talks about Scripture and the way God reveals himself through the Bible, he switches very abruptly to the personal name of God, Yahweh. It's a name very personal. It's the difference between calling me reverend and calling me Dave. He uses God's first name as he talks about the way that God is extending himself, revealing himself through the words of scripture. What he's saying is, you know there is a God. Now get to know what this God is like. I'll tell you his name. I'll tell you his attributes. You'll find all that out if you will read the book which God has written. David has nothing bad to say about the word of God. He is gushing here. And this is one of the most beautiful and positive portrayals of the scriptures found in all the Bible. Every word he uses is a superlative that tries to outdo the last one saying, you just have no idea. The Bible is just so, oh, if you could spell that, I bet you he would have spelled, oh, it's just so how do you describe something where it's just so good, you're trying to find words, you got a thesaurus, and you go, nothing here is good enough. That's the way I feel at some level about Fannie Mae Mint Meltaway ice cream, as I try to describe it to people in Uganda, and they were like, what is this? I, how do you describe it? I'm like, and so I made sounds, and they go, oh, we have things like that here as well. 
fresh mangoes and whatnot. You go, oh, oh. And you get the idea. David is just straining to say, if you could see in the word of God what he has privileged me to see just a few times even, you'd never think it's boring. You'd never leave it neglected on your shelf day after day. If you could see what God has revealed of himself to the pages of scripture, it would rock you to the core. You would become addicted to mining its depths, trying to draw out more of him because you couldn't get enough. I mean, can you imagine how nuts people would go if they discovered the, the hidden secret diaries of Jim Morrison from the Doors? How about the, you know, have you seen Doors fans? They're rabid. They're barely human. These people, it's like a religion. If there was some hidden secret diary that was unearthed and you could really get into the soul, the heart, the mind of Jim Morrison, I promise you these people would chop off their right arm to read one page. And David says, you just don't know. I've, I've, I know this God and the way I've come to know him is through the wondrous pages of scripture. If you dwell on them, the goodness in them will come out and wash over you you won't be able to, to escape it. He says, if you spend that time listening to what God is revealing of himself in scripture, there'll be a profound effect on your life. Let me just take five minutes to give you a couple of the benefits that David sees. One is he says, God's word revives the soul. It's a very interesting word construction uh, and we've got to define what revive and what, what the word soul means. I mean, revive is really bringing to life that which was dead. Zombies, right? I mean, zombies are like the living dead. But this is now turning a zombie into a real person again. It's bringing life back to dead things. And the soul is what you might call, if you want to get philosophical, it's the irreducible self. It's the basic unit of how you understand me-ness, me this is the essence of who I am, the core engine, that nuclear reactor burning inside of me. This is me. What he says is the word of God takes deadness at the center of who you are and it puts life back in there. And some of you need to hear that because you might smile politely when people ask you how you're doing. But right now sitting in this room, you know it's true. You hate your life. You wonder if you made a mistake marrying who you married, not applying to that school you should have, not asking that girl to marry you, not studying harder for your test. You're sitting here going, my life altogether just stinks. I'm not happy with it. My existence, if there was some way ethically to end it all, I might consider it. Inside, while outside I'm smiling, inside something is rotting and it's dying. The candle is barely flickering. And here's the thing, well-meaning friends have come up to you and they've spoken words of encouragement and hope. Press on, soldier. Hang in there, buddy. You got it. You're going to make it. You're going to be just fine. Everything's going to be okay. And you know they love you, so you take some momentary comfort and you say, thank you. I, I, that really helps. Really little, but yeah, it really helps for the next 30 seconds. I'm just thinking about what you said and I won't be thinking about my horrible life. But as soon as you walk away, I'm going to remember again, because here I am. My life is not what I wanted. It's not what I dreamt it would be. And your words, all your friends, they get around you. They tell you, they throw you parties. You, Thank you, but none of this is really helping. I'm laughing, I'm smiling, but inside, man, I'm barely hanging on. 
And let me give you an illustration to help you understand how the Word of God alone has power to rekindle that flame that's going out in you. You can go everywhere else to try to revive your soul and it's not going to take because there's nothing in the world but God and His Word that has the power to rekindle your soul. I fly a lot. And several times I've been stranded in the middle of the night at an airport dealing with, what do I do to get home? I want to be home so badly. And there's no one in sight. Now imagine you're in that situation, stranded in some airport. What's the worst airport? Indianapolis airport. The worst I've ever, seriously, the worst. And you're there in the middle of the night. And you go, what do I do? And then up comes a baggage handler coming off shift. And he sees you like, oh, you look like someone who vaguely has authority in the airport. I'm stranded. Can you help me find a flight? And that guy says to you, uh, look, I'll, I'll see if I can go in back and find someone. How much comfort does that give you in your situation? But then I want you to imagine a guy in a suit with, with, with a name tag that says regional director of customer relations and rebooking comes out and he goes, Sir, can I help you? You say, I'm, I'm stranded. He goes, listen, I promise you on my honor, you're going to get home tonight. I will get you on a flight home. Don't worry. And he pulls up the keyboard. And he looks like he knows he's in. You're like, wow, I feel, how do you feel now? How do you feel now? See, that baggage handler may have been totally earnest in his desire to help you. But what can he do to get you on another flight? He lacks the authority, the power, the resources to do anything more than wish for you. The manager, he's got some juice. When he says, I promise you, I will get you home, you stop worrying. Just like you got the stomach ache from this big knife when you go, ow, and you get to the, the hospital. And just as you pull in, you go, your pain goes away. You're like, oh, it's going to be better now. Because the doctors are here. The machines are here. The blood bank is here. And right away, you feel better because someone who can help you has just collided with you. Do you get that? That's the difference between the words of your friends and all the other shallow attempts you make to revive your soul. And when God's word speaks and you truly hear it, it does a work that is mystical, supernatural. It revives you in ways that nothing else and no one else could possibly do. Let me give you one more example of the benefits of God's word. He says that God's word makes wise the simple. Can everyone over 50 just, uh, just hear me out for a second? Is it true that young fools grow up to be old fools unless somewhere along that journey they have an inelastic collision with some wisdom, right? In other words, if you don't get wise, you're just going to be older but just as dumb as when you were 20. And when you're 20, you're really dumb. I'm sorry, 20-year-olds and younger. You're so dumb. You just don't know how dumb you are yet. You're pre-enlightened as to your own dumbness. <laughs> but we older people know that we would be just as dumb and grayer if wisdom had not been collected along the way. See, you look back 15 years. Tim Keller says this in a, in a really entertaining way. You look back 15 years and you judge and despise the fool you once were. But in 15 years, the future, you will look back on who you are right now. And go, what an idiot. What was I thinking? Could I have been that short-sighted? And so we ask now, what makes the difference between the future me that's wise and the future me that's pretty much the same dummy that I am today? Where does wisdom come from? 
not just shrewdness or smarts, but real wisdom, where does it come from? And I can't emphasize this enough because people don't seem to really believe it. They want to hear really good advice peppered with maybe a few quotes from a leading business book or something. Oprah maybe said it. Just give me some real world stuff. Don't give me Bibleese and slogans from scripture. But I'm telling you right now, there is no other real source of wisdom than the word of God. It is timeless. It doesn't change with our fickle culture. There's a depth and an eternality to the word of God so that no matter how much we change in our temperaments and our cultural preferences, the word of God is always going to be beautiful in its moral integrity, in its, its gloriousness. I'm telling you, people don't believe it. I see people in our church, maybe the same as in your church, going around in pain-filled, frustrating circles of dysfunction. They're doing the same thing over and over. I get phone calls from them. And as soon as the caller ID flashes, I know what we're going to be talking about. Because we talked about it last week. And we talked about it last year. And the year before that, nothing changes. Nothing grows. Nothing snaps. Because you know what's happening? They refuse to go to God's word and submit to it. There's no wisdom gained because they don't believe that wisdom ultimately comes from the Word of God. So they think, how come my life is always broken? Why can't I ever go in another direction? I'm like, well, turn right. God's words to turn right once in a while. But I'm just going to keep turning this way. Maybe, yeah. And this is how we live. You know this to be true. I can always ask this question in a crisis counseling situation. Um, brother, you look really frazzled right now. You look really ticked off. Nothing's working for you. Are you in the Word of God these days? 99% of the time, you get the word, no. And that 1% is totally lying butt off. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Nobody rooted in the Word of God is sitting there doing the same self-destructive, stupid things to themselves and to others over and over. Every failing marriage, every shipwrecked career, every broken family has at its root that those who need to know God have totally abandoned His Word, have decided, I'll go with the prevailing winds of cultural wisdom, I'll go with the advice of my friends or with my own gut instinct, because that's so trustworthy. It's gotten me so far in life. We would rather trust what has steered us wrong over and over than to turn to God. And God says, if you would just turn to my word, let me reveal myself to you. You will see me, you'll see glory, and you'll understand. And you will get wisdom. And though you are simple now, someday you will be wise. I'm just going to take two minutes and finish. So David then says at the end, Man, this is good stuff. He uses gold, which in his day was like what ballers had a lot of. It's a lot of gold. So he says, would you desire wealth and the beauty of gold? It's, got, it's better than that. He says, honey, who who's really loves honey here? Does anybody even care about honey? Some people love honey, right? But that was in the days before Captain Crunch and stuff like that. Haagen-Dazs ice cream bars and red mango. So, you know, David is just trying to strain everything you think is good in this world desirable, if you see the word of God and how it reveals him, nothing could compete for your affection with this revelation of God that comes through his word. But then he says something at the end here. Okay? 
He says, they are warning to those who hear them, there is great reward for those who obey them. And that sounds like a really blessing statement, but all of a sudden David's mood changes. Oh man, this word is so beautiful. Everyone who does exactly what it says, lives life the way it describes, they will be so blessed, there will be great reward. But then David, his mood changes, he goes, but man, it's not me. That's not me. It's so beautiful. I wish I could live like this, but it's not me. This is a free magazine we got from a health club, or GNC. And it's a magazine, it's got some nice little fitness tips um, that tell you how to lose weight and gain muscle quickly and all that. And I've been carrying this around in my bag, and every time I look at this cover, it just ticks me off so bad. <laughs> it inspired me at first. I'm like, ooh, yeah, let me just get a little... And I was like, oh, I'm going to, but you know what? The more I look at this picture, I think God is such an unfair God. How come some guys, and I'm assuming this guy just gets up in the morning, eats a Twinkie and looks like this. It's just genetics, right? It's so easy for him because he's just standing there like, no effort. And I look like a Greek God. This angers me because after a while I look at it and I think, forget it. Stupid vitamins and crunches. I'm never going to get there. It's hopeless. And, and imagine how heartbreaking if I thought my wife expects me to look like that before she'll be intimate with me, before she'll love me, accept me. I got to look like... Then the despair would be immeasurable, wouldn't it? And what David's saying is, I look at the beauty of God's word, what a picture it describes, and I long to have it, but then I look in me, and the problems are all in here. I'm never going to get that. It's so frustrating to see glory... And then to see this, and go, this does not equal, you know, that equal sign of the line, does not equal glory. And so now David's mood changes, and he goes, well, I'm not going to sit there and go, I'm going to look at God's word, and I'm going to dwell on it, I'm going to pretend it's sweet, oh, that was such a good quiet time. I'm not going to push the issue, but instead, look at the language, how it shifts. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? And then he, he turns everything over to God. Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep me from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. He's saying, have mercy on me, God. I'm powerless against the Twinkie. I will never look like that. I I can't do it. I am asking you to do something for me because it's galling to see the standard and know I will never meet it. And his last words are, oh Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And that's just David's way of looking ahead to Jesus Christ and saying, there is one who will perfectly delight in the word of God all his days. He will see the standard and he will become the fulfillment of it. He will be perfectly, flawlessly pleasing to the Father. That one is Jesus Christ. Do you get that? That one is Jesus Christ. And because Jesus fulfilled it, And then he offered us the credit for all of that. We can go back to this picture and say, well, I don't have to look like this. My wife accepted me, but thank goodness if I keep at it, I'll get a little closer. That's good enough for me. I'm not not on drugs to to believe I'm ever going to look like this, okay? I'm not. (laughs) It stinks. That's okay because my wife thinks I am the bee's knees. She likes this. It's kind of weird to think about. And God looks at you 
And he doesn't see you. He sees his son. He goes, I can accept you now. Because finally some human being perfectly delighted in the word. He lived out exactly what I had in mind. And he stands in front of you and shields you and says, when you look at them, look at me. That's why I can say to you without apology, I, I charge you now in the name of Jesus, recommit yourself to looking for God in the created world, in the circumstances of your life, and especially in the pages of Scripture. Look for Him. Look into the Word of God. Don't be discouraged by the incredibly high standard it sets because Jesus has protected you from despair. And He said it's worth it to keep gazing at the glory of God. He is working that glory out in your life day by day. And you will never finish that project this side of death. But He will finish it one day. And so I will not saddle you with moralistic guilt and tell you, you have to read the Bible every day, have quiet time, journal, six colored pencils, this system and that system. Forget all that and just gaze at God. Look for Him. Actively seek. He's not hiding from you. You will find Him if you look for Him. That's a promise that is as sure as the Word of God. And if you haven't seen Him lately, I promise you if you look, He'll show up this week in your life. I want to invite you to bow and pray with me. I thank you for your patience in a warm room. I went just a little over time, but I'm going to ask you if you would, these next two minutes or so, push aside every distraction. This is the part where the word of God preached. This is now, it's going to take over you. I don't know where you've been going to revive your soul, to gain wisdom, to feel a heart springing forth with joy, but maybe you've turned to a lot of the really wrong places, and every adrenaline rush fades, every word falls short, and in the end you still feel the same hollowness you've always felt. And God says, you cannot find what you're looking for in the places you're looking. But if you look around for me, you'll see glory. Your soul will suddenly lose its, its breath. If you don't know what I'm talking about, beg God. What is that guy talking about? What's he describing? Beg God, I want to actually experience something like that. Glory. Wonder. Maybe he'll show it to you this week just through the sky. Maybe that's where it'll start for you. Through the smile on your child's face. But I hope that eventually he'll draw you to the pages of his word. Where he'll whisper sweet words that will feel in that moment like they were meant just for you. So why don't we just turn our hearts to him and say, God, I want that. I want to see you. Let's pray for it.
Last week I was in Uganda teaching at a pastor's conference and half of those pastors had only the tatters of some American youth group students' newsprint Bible taped together. That's what they were using to lead their church. And I thought in the average American Christian home, there are three Bibles per household. And yet are we any richer than they are in God's word? If those three copies just collect dust in our coffee tables, what good is the book if the word has died the death of neglect? God is speaking. Will we listen? I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to pick up God's word this week and honor the Lord by seeking him in its pages. He is talking to you and you have no idea what wealth you are missing if you will not read. So let's pray that God would bless and anoint for each one of us here that time which we will set apart in his word each day. Ask him. Sometimes it's boring, but ask him. Come and meet me when I open this. Rock me at least one day this week. Do something. Let's pray that right now, can we? Let's ask him. God who reveals himself in creation, who has spoken through his book, you're speaking. Now call your people to you to listen and to see and to behold your glory. And in seeing you, we shall then ultimately see ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we respond to the Lord through one final song?
teach us, Lord. doesn't hide his face from us, uh, a God who um, leaves it up to us to discover the meaning of life and um, what we ought to do. But you pursue us, and you chase after us. You reveal yourself in so many awesome and amazing ways. Open our eyes to even be able to look at the creation that surrounds us every moment and to find within what we see the your fingerprint your hand, and your glory. Lord, grant to us the work of your Holy Spirit in our life that would awaken our souls to resonate with your word. And as we read it, as we eat it, may it nourish our souls and feed our spirits. Souls that are maybe flickering and just bare embers of the fire that once burned there. May your word just bring it to life. For those struggling to find answers and seeking desperately to turn around poor decisions that have been made. May your word be wisdom to us. 
opening our eyes to see the foolishness with which we are shipwrecking our own lives and to be able to turn to your and turn to your ways because of the light that your word provides in our life. You've spoken in so many ways, Lord, but in these last days, you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ, the living word, the radiance of your glory, the perfect representation of your being. And so may we embrace Christ, the living word, for all of our failures and all of our unworthiness, all of our struggles and striving to live a righteous life and to be pleasing in your eyes. May all of that striving ultimately bring us to the foot of the cross and to embrace the Son of God who made a way for us that we could never make on our own. May we testify this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the goodness of that word to us. And as we do so, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the endless, bountiful love of God, our Heavenly Father, the ministering, abiding presence of the Holy Ghost be with all of God's people now and forevermore.